editor, John Mitchell. Brother Mitchell is the editor of this paper. He has an article, an editorial article in here that firmly establishes the truth of the book of Genesis. Outstanding writing. Brother Ron has read a lot of John's writings and appreciates very much his ability in writing, teaching the word through writing. And we're thankful for that. John has preached for the last 10 years to the church in Duncan, South Carolina. And as I talked with David Farr, he said, Duncan, don't know what they're doing and letting that man go. And if you can get him to come to White Oak, you're going to be well blessed. John and his family are here with us today. We're thankful for their being here. His wife, Beth, daughters, Katie and Ashlyn, are here with us to let you become acquainted with them today. We'll be having lunch together after a while and be able to enjoy our time together. We so much appreciate John and his ability in preaching the Word. We're thankful to have him here today as he gives consideration to us and we give consideration to him. I hope that we'll like him as well as he likes us and that things may work out that he could be our next preacher here at White Oak. We so much appreciate the good work that he's done over the years, the work that he's doing now, and the work that he will continue to do. And it's our privilege to have him come to us to now to preach the word. John, come and preach to us. Good morning. I'm going to have to really... Uh, thank David Farr for uh, all those kind words he said. I, it's amazing. He never says anything like that to me. <laughs> he usually, uh, we, we usually get into all kinds of little sparring matches. Um, I was, I met him ten years ago, and in a in a preacher's meeting, um, he asked me a, a question. He kind of. It was kind of like a teacher calling on a student because I, I made the mistake of, of whispering to the preacher next to me while he was talking. So he decided to call me down and he asked me, uh, he asked me a question and I didn't know the answer to it. So I gave him quite a sarcastic answer and response that, that made the, uh, rest of the preachers laugh and he kind of gave me a, um, a glare. And since then, uh, I think he and not only his family, but uh, his son and his grandson have made it their mission in life to try to embarrass me wherever I go. But uh, I really, in all seriousness, he is a, uh, he's a good man, and he's a good friend, and he's done a, a lot of good work in South Carolina at the uh, Rock Hill Congregation. I appreciate uh, the good brethren here. For the hospitality and the love and the kindness that they've shown to my family and to myself as well, and I'm looking forward to eating lunch with you um, in just a, in just a few minutes. You'll notice that as I think it's on. Is it on on the screen? Uh, well, if you turn your Bibles to Romans five, 
And you look at verses 1 and 2. Romans 5 verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is talking to uh, Christians in the Church of Rome. And he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Notice what he said. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace. That's a wonderful word. Grace. Doesn't it give you hope? The concept of God's grace, thinking about it. Doesn't it comfort you greatly? The Apostle Paul, he loved to talk about grace. He loved that word. If you you read throughout the New Testament, you'll notice that in most of his letters to churches and to individuals, he, he, the very first thing that he says to them, he's, he's talking with them about grace. He, he opens it up by saying grace to you and, and peace. And, and he also, he ends his letters wishing the same thing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I mentioned in the class today, that Proverbs 30 verse 5 says that every word of God is tested. God had a reason to inspire Paul to open up his letters wishing God's grace upon the brethren. He had a reason to inspire Paul to end his letters by wishing the grace of Jesus Christ to be with his Christian brethren. God wants us to fully experience His grace. We love the word grace, but do we, do we know what it actually means? Do we understand it? There's a lot of misconceptions about grace, and, and, and it's unfortunate that, there, that these misconceptions exist because it might cause us to, to not only fail to fully understand grace, but we might even be hesitant to even talk about it. Because out there in the denominational world, they they have just completely twisted the biblical concept of grace. And people have such such a wrong idea about what grace means so that uh, I might even be tempted to not even talk about the subject for fear that, well, he... Oh, he's, he's gonna to talk to us about grace. Oh, he, he's, he's one of those liberal apostate preachers. He's gonna be talking about grace. Cause, you know, the liberals out there, they'll just take grace and they'll just, they'll lean on grace too much. They'll use it as a crutch. They'll use it as an excuse to sin. So, well, that may be true, but let's never forget, brethren, that the only reason our names are written in heaven is by the grace of God when all is said and done. And we need to understand that. And we need to understand everything that the Bible teaches about grace so that we can share it with others. Because grace 
grace is the foundation of the gospel of Christ. It's the good news. It's the good news. Without great, everything else that the gospel of Christ consists of, the, the, the wonderful news of the death of Jesus Christ, his burial, his resurrection, all of that took place because God gave us grace. He showed grace to us. So I, I want this morning to have every one of you leave today with everything you need to know about grace. But as I brought out in the class this morning, I don't, I don't want you to keep this, this good news to yourself because, because if, we, if we are edified, if we are spiritually built up, and if we are taught and we learn what the Bible teaches in sermons and Bible classes, and if we, if we come to understand the good news of, of God's grace this morning, but if we keep that good news to ourselves, if we don't go out and share it with others, then what good is it going to do? What good is it going to do to us? What good is it going to do with, with, to those who are lost all around us? But let's look at grace today. Starting out, I'd like, uh, I'd like for us to look at the definition of grace. The New Testament was written in Greek. Whenever we read the word grace in our English Bibles, it comes from a Greek word, charis. And that's the word we get charity from. And that's, it's, a, it's appropriate that we get that word from because charis has several definitions. The first definition is that which gives joy, pleasure, and delight. That's the original idea of the Greek word charis, which is translated grace in the New Testament. That which gives joy and pleasure and delight. That, that definition was used in the New Testament to, in reference to one speech, how you talk. What you said and how you said it. In Luke 4 verse 22, Jesus is preaching in Nazareth and, and eventually they rejected him, but at first they didn't, they weren't upset with him when he was talking to them. It says that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. The apostle Paul told Christians in Ephesus, Ephesians 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Uh, he told the Colossians, Colossians 4, verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The, Na the people of Nazareth, they noticed that the words of Jesus were spoken with grace. They were gracious words, and they appreciated that. They respected that. They noticed it. Our words as the followers of Christ, as His disciples, as Christians, our words must likewise be filled with grace. They must give grace to those who hear. But my question is, do they? Do they give grace? You know, it's an election year. And in my observation, one thing that people get pretty passionate about is politics. 
And today's Super Bowl Sunday. If there's another thing that people get passionate about, it's sports. And when we get passionate about something, sometimes we allow what comes out of our mouths to be less than gracious. I have, I, I do not agree with the overwhelming majority of our current president's policies. But that being said, God still wants me to, when I, if I'm going to talk about the president, he says in Ephesians 4 verse 29 and Colossians 4 verse 6, let your speech be gracious. You're going to say that President Obama or Hillary Clinton is wrong for supporting same-sex marriage, then by all means, go ahead and say it, but, but be gracious when you say it. Don't call them an idiot. Don't curse them. Don't call them fools. You can criticize people in a way that still gives grace. If tonight, if you are rooting for the Cardinals, and why would you? I don't understand that. But if you were, and let's say that the quarterback just completely, he has the, he has the great opportunity to, for, to throw the perfect game-winning pass, and let's say he fumbles the ball. You have a right to say, oh man, why did you do that? But God is saying, do not curse that quarterback. Don't call him names. Don't insult him. And that's how he wants us to talk to each other as well. Let your speech be gracious. Let your speech, according to the first definition of Charis, give joy, pleasure, Delight to those who hear you. I've been preaching for 16 years. In year one of, of my preaching, I, I hooked up the internet to my office computer and, and I discovered these message boards that Christians can come on, members of the Lord's church, and they'll talk about the Bible with each other. And, and back then it was message boards and now today it's Facebook. But these online Bible discussions happen every single day and a lot of good can be done and a lot of good has been done. But one thing I've noticed for 16 years of being involved in online, online Bible discussions with my brothers and sisters in the Lord's church is that there are so many of us that when we talk to each other online, we are not gracious at all. We encounter someone who is a member of the Lord's Church or a member of a denomination and they are uh, online in this discussion on Facebook. They're promoting uh, false doctrine. They're promoting error. And we must contend for the faith. Jude 3, we must speak the truth. Ephesians 4, verse 15. But, that, but let's not forget that, that there, there was a little caveat at the end of that verse. It says, speak the truth in love. Let's not forget that it says in Galatians 6, 1, that if a brother is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him 
By letting him have it. No, he doesn't say that. With a spirit of gentleness. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. He must be kind to everyone. Able to teach patiently correcting his opponents with gentleness. Do we talk to each other in a gracious way? Do our words give joy and pleasure and delight? Think about the grace of God. Think about how He shows that grace to you. Do your words to others mirror God's grace that He shows to you? Do your words give joy and pleasure and delight to those who hear you? Or are your words a source of pain, irritation, hurt? First definition, that which gives joy and pleasure and delight. Second definition, goodwill, loving kindness and favor. And, and in this way, the idea of grace is used to describe the kindness a master shows to his servants, his inferiors. And also, it's used to describe the kindness that God shows to man. And this definition of charis contains the idea of kindness which gives someone what they don't deserve. And the New Testament writers primarily use this word charis, which is translated grace, in this way. They're describing God's kindness which He gives to mankind even though we don't deserve it. And it's because of this kindness, this charis, this grace that God pardons us of our sins. It is because of this grace, this kindness, that God bids us to accept salvation through Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 5, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. And it's this definition of grace that we think of the most. It's this definition of goodwill, loving kindness, and favor that prompts us to give grace the definition we most often give it, unmerited favor. But there are other definitions of grace too. The third definition that I found in the Greek lexicons for charis is a spiritual state or condition in which one enjoys God's grace. Remember this, when you accept the grace of God, the Bible is basically saying that you are in a state of grace. Romans 5, which we read a second ago, talks about that this grace in which we stand. We are standing in grace. Peter said, in talking about Silvanus, his faithful brother, in 1 Peter 5, verse 12, he said that Silvanus... Uh, exhorted and declared to you that this is the true grace of God. And he tells Christians, stand firm in it. Stand firmly in the grace of God. But then there's a fourth definition of grace also. The fourth definition of charis that I found in the lexicons is an expression of gratitude for favors that are given to us by God and others. This word is used in, in this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul says, I thank Jesus Christ. But that word thank is the same word that's translated grace elsewhere. It's charis, but it's translated 
as an expression of gratitude in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. I thank Him. I charis Him. Have you ever asked someone to, before eating a meal, to say grace? Have you ever wondered, why, why do we call the prayer of thanksgiving for a meal? Why do we call that grace? Why do we say, say grace? Because one of the definitions of the Greek word is gratitude. Grace is all about gratitude. It's all about being thankful. You want to thank God for your food. God wants you to thank Him for the food. He, that's why Paul told Timothy that in talking about food, he said that God created the food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, with grace, with gratitude. Being thankful for it. These are the main ways that grace is used in the New Testament. And in connection with this word, there are some things that Christians should always keep in mind about grace. The first thing we must never forget, brethren, is we are saved by grace. Salvation is first, foremost, and always a matter of grace. In Ephesians 2, starting with verse 5, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, contextually, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's what's Paul, what Paul is meaning about this when he writes this. Brethren, never forget this. God does not owe us anything. What we deserve is eternal condemnation. Why? Because we're all sinners. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? It's death. That's what we deserve. That's what all of us deserve. But thanks be to God that Romans 6.23 goes on to say, the wages of sin is death, yes, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is a gift which God through the loving kindness of His heart has offered to us. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What are you saying, Paul? 
no matter what God calls upon us to do in order to receive His grace, when we do what He's told us to do, when we believe in the Word of God with all of our heart and confess that faith, and when we obey His commands to repent of our sins, and when we obey His commands to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins, never forget this. Even though we have done what He has told us to do, and even though we continue to do what He tells us to do as faithful Christians, in no way could we ever say that we have earned our salvation. In no way could we ever say that we merit our salvation. Because if we were to try to do that, God would say two things to us. First thing He would say is Luke 17, verse 10. When you have done all that you are commanded to do, you should still say, we are unworthy servants. We have done only that which was our duty. And the second thing God would say to us, if we would, if we were to have the arrogance to say, Lord, I deserve heaven because I was baptized into the Lord's church and, and I partook of the Lord's supper every Sunday and I never forsook the assembly and I gave liberally and sacrificially of, of my means every Lord's day and I was a very, very strong, active, personal worker, an evangelist, and I treated others the way that I would have wanted to be treated, and I did this, 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 and this, all that you told me to do, Lord, so I deserve heaven. And God would say, but you still sinned, though. You still sinned. So no, you don't deserve heaven. And you are entering into heaven through my grace through my kindness that I am showing to you. Only by God's grace is salvation possible. Never forget that. But there's something else that we must keep in mind, and this is something which many don't think about when they think about the grace of God. God's grace requires something. Do you ever think about that? God's grace requires Holy, obedient living. Look at Titus chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. What's training us? Read the previous verse. It's the grace of God. The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's Paul telling us here? The grace of God is training us. The grace of God is teaching us. What's it teaching us? It's teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. It's teaching us to live soberly and righteously and godly. It's teaching us to look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. And after he says that about God's grace, look at verse 14. God goes on to explain why Jesus in grace gave Himself for us in verse 14. So that He might redeem us. Redeem us from what? Notice, He says, redeem us from every lawless deed. And there's another reason in verse 14. That He might purify us for Himself, for His own special people. And we are to be that special people, a people that the verse says are zealous for good works. 
God's grace requires us to be obedient. God's grace requires us to be holy. The grace of God is no excuse to go on sinning unrepentantly. And how sad it is that I I myself have done this, and I have heard brethren in the church do it. I, I know I need to stop doing this. I know I should repent of that. But it's okay because God's grace is going to cover me. God's grace will cover you if you make a wholehearted effort to obey Him and repent. That's when God's grace will cover you. Because He will give you that forgiveness which you don't deserve. But never ever think that God's grace is going to just allow you to sweep unrepentant sin under the carpet and ignore it. That's not, that's not how the plan of God works. God's grace requires holy living. But not only does it require holy living, when you think about it, holy living requires God's grace. You ever thought about that? The grace of God trains us to live soberly, righteously, and godly. There is no way that we can live soberly and righteously and godly without the grace of God. Because we can't do it on our own. We can do it with the help of God. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He works in us to accomplish His own good will. I can do all things. How? Through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4, verse 13. It is by the strength of God, it is by the grace of God that we can do all the things that He desires of us. God's grace requires holy living and holy living requires God's grace. But there's one more thing I want to share with you. Well, two more things I want to share with you about grace. Number one, God wants us to grow in grace. And this is especially true if we're going to live holy lives. Peter, the last thing that he wrote before his death that we have on record in Scripture, he was inspired to tell us, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in God's grace, he tells us. Second Peter 3, verse 18. Friends, listen to me. Remember this. It is not enough for us to have experienced the grace of God that one time when we came up out of the waters of baptism. God has so much more to share with us, both in this life and in the life to come. Ephesians 2, verse 7, He talked about how in the coming ages He might show us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. Why do you think Paul opened and closed most of his letters by saying, grace be with you? It wasn't just the common salutation at the time. It wasn't the equivalent of us saying, sincerely, comma, John Mitchell. No. He wanted us to grow in the grace of God. God wants us to grow in His grace. How do we do it? How do we grow in His grace? Remember what Paul told those elders in Acts 20? 
He said, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. How do we grow in grace? We must heed the word of God. We must study it. We must obey it. We must believe it. We must know it. When that happens, we grow in the grace of God. But also, do you remember what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4, verse 16? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do we grow in grace? Not only by heeding the Word of God, but also by drawing near to His throne in our prayers. That's how we grow in grace. There is one more thing we need to always remember about grace. And this is very, very important for us as Christians to remember. We can receive the grace of God in vain. That is a possibility. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1. You see, we as Christians, we did receive the grace of God, but it is possible for it all to have been in vain. How? The Bible says when we seek justification for sin in places other than the Gospel of Christ. He told the Galatians, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Galatians 5 verse 4. He's talking about the law of Moses contextually. The Galatians had been telling people that they would be saved if they followed a law in addition to the New Testament. A law which the Bible says sought salvation by works alone. If we seek to be justified by any system of salvation by works alone, if we try to earn our way into heaven, we fall from grace. Another way for the grace of God to be in vain as far as we as concerned, if we use His grace as an excuse for licentiousness. Jude talked about ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Jude 4. People who used grace as an excuse for shameful behavior. But as I mentioned earlier in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, God's grace has no room for that. Because God's grace requires holy, righteous, obedient living. We cannot be involved in, in fornication. We cannot be involved in sinful activity and say, it's okay. I can keep on doing this. God's grace will cover me. No, it won't. That's where the writer of Hebrews comes in. In Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, if we sin willfully, some translations say, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, if we sin purposefully, stubbornly, we know that we should not do this, but we're going to do it anyway because it's all about what I want to do. Not about what God wants, about what I want. What does the writer of Hebrews say? He says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins if you have that type of attitude. What is our sacrifice for sins? Isn't not Christ on the cross? But, but the writer of Hebrews is telling us, if you sin unrepentantly, rebelliously, purposefully, willfully, 
then God is saying to you, it's as if Jesus never went to the cross. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins as far as you are concerned. But what do you have to look forward to? The terrible expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who transgresses the law of Moses dies on the testimony of two or three witnesses, he said, but how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who does what? Look at the passage. He says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He is sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? You know, when we sin purposefully and unrepentantly as Christians, we are sending a message to God. And here's the message we're sending. Lord, I know that Your Son went through this horrible, terrible, humiliating, extremely agonizing, painful death all for me so that I could be saved from my sins and spend an eternity with You instead of spending an eternity in hell. He went through all of that for me, Lord. But you know what, Lord? What matters more to me than that is doing what I want to do. So I really don't care about what Your Son went through on my account. Because that's not as important to me as me continuing in this sin which gives me satisfaction. That is the message that we are sending to God. The blood which saves us, the blood which Jesus shed, the writer of Hebrews says, we are looking at that as a profane thing. We are trampling under our feet the Son of God. It, you know, the, He says in chapter 6 that we would be crucifying the Son of God all over again. But basically trampling underfoot the Son of God, the way I picture in my mind when I think of that is I think of Jesus being on the ground and us, us just kicking Him. That's what I think of when I read that passage. And how terrible it would be. How terrible it would be to have the arrogance and audacity to say to God Almighty, what Your Son did for me, I don't really, it's not that big a deal to me. It's not nearly as important as me doing what I want to do. And that's why the verse goes on to say that when we have that attitude, we outrage the Spirit of grace. We insult the Spirit of grace. Do not think that God's grace will cover us when we have that type of attitude. The good news, though, is that God does not require us to be perfect. God wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be obedient. He knows we're going to sin because of ignorance or because of weakness, because of pride. He knows that we're going to sin. He knows that we're going to mess up. But He has a plan for that. My grace will cover you even when you sin as long as you continue to repent of it. If we confess our sins, confess in the Greek means to acknowledge. If we acknowledge our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9-11 through 11 talks about having a godly sorrow which produces repentance, which leads to salvation. As Christians, when we sin, God wants us to have the sorrow, the humility, to get down on our knees and say, Lord, I did not mean to do that. I did it in a moment of weakness. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please help me not to do it again. And when that happens, when we say that from the heart as Christians, it's already taken care of. God's grace, His Son's blood, completely washed it away. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that give you hope? Gives me hope. Because without that, I would, I, I would have no chance whatsoever and neither would you. So if you are here as a Christian, and you need to confess sins and repent of them. You can confess to each other, as James says. We can pray for you. We can encourage you. You'll be, a, you'll be an encouragement to us and an example to us. But make sure that regardless of whether or not you choose to confess and repent of sins publicly, make sure you do it privately. Make sure you confess to God. Make sure you ask Him penitently for forgiveness. And the promise is so wonderful. It will be immediate and total. And if you are here tonight and you are not a Christian, if you are not a Christian as the New Testament defines a Christian, don't believe what you hear out there on the radio or on TV. All you have to do to be saved is ask Jesus into your heart. That's not in the Bible in any way, shape, or form. The salvation is initially obtained. That grace is initially obtained. That forgiveness is initially obtained. When you do believe, yes, but that faith prompts you to repent. And you wash your sins away through baptism into the body of Christ. And if you have yet to do that, don't leave here today without studying with someone Don't leave here today without doing what you can to know what the Lord requires of you in His Gospel. And obey it. And stand in His grace. If you need to respond, please come now while we stand and sing.